0: Oh, would you turn with me in your Bibles this morning to a very well-known psalm, the 51st Psalm, where I will be reading verses 1 through 6. Psalm 51, 1 through 6, you can find that psalm on page 555 in your pew Bibles. The great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, The best of men are conscious above all others that they are men at best. Empty boats float high, but heavily laden vessels float low in the water. Mere professors can boast, but the true children of God cry for mercy upon recognition of their complete unprofitableness. Spurgeon captures in these few simple words, not only the nature of man as corrupt, but he also brings into light the absolute reliance upon God's mercy that man must recognize when he realizes what he truly is as a son of Adam. And as his quote points out, the result of this recognition upon the true follower of Jesus Christ is humility before Almighty God and never anything that even remotely resembles a misplaced confidence in oneself. Perhaps to put it in even more fitting vernacular, pride. I am sure that we can all attest to the fact that pride is alive and well, even thriving in the world today. However, beloved, I would also say to you, not just in the world. Pride is something that also runs rampant, even in what passes as the church of Jesus Christ today. We've looked at it together before in Romans 11. It exists in many shapes and forms, all of them contain the same. Heinous stench, heinous stench of sin at, its, at their root, the foul air that is always the result of our thinking much more highly of ourselves than we ought to. It is apparent in the blind moralism that is so prevalent in the church today. The Christian life has been reduced to a system of successful living that is ultimately judged by my apparent ability to stick to a set of preconceived rules and regulations. And the focus of such systems is almost always on things that are external to me. The attention is placed on the things that I am doing or that I am not doing. Things outside of myself that would speak to my own level of supposed righteousness. We write the rules, or I should say we rewrite the rules, which is exactly what we do when we reduce the holy law of God to something that we can attain to or achieve perfection in. And then we decide who gets it and who does not, based entirely upon our ability to live within our own rules. And when you and I get to make the rules that regulate our perceptions of our own goodness, well, then we can walk away thinking that we look pretty good. And I trust that you recognize it. This is not one of those errors that somehow stays within only certain denominational lines. But it's found throughout the visible church. The awful truth is, beloved, we simply think far too much of ourselves. We often have a vaulted view of our own spirituality. We have bought the lie of popular culture that we are only as good as we feel. And so we do everything in our power to feel good about ourselves. We bring the truth into the line with our feelings rather than our feelings into line with the truth. The truth is static. It is unchanging. Our feelings are fallen. And they're just about as stable as nitroglycerin. And so we have subsequently placed our trust in our programs that we have conjured up in our own puffed up imaginations in the name of Jesus Christ. Tragically then becomes another common buzzword in the Christian subculture, a name that sounds wonderful when someone knows how to drop it properly. The proper use of the name of Jesus Christ becomes just one more thing that speaks to my level of personal achievement for God and his kingdom. I want you to understand that, and I say it all the time, but we're not immune to this. Good reformed folk do this all the time. We too like to lean on our own understanding. We too like to trust in our own perceptions. We too celebrate our own works. And I would argue that moralism is just as prevalent with us who wholeheartedly declare and proclaim the glorious doctrines of grace as it is with everyone else. It just shows up in other ways, and different forms. But it's always the same character wearing a different mask. Lift the mask, and you will immediately recognize the ghastly face of pride. We often downplay the seriousness of our sin in other ways. I've talked about that before. We know enough not to fall victim to blatant moralism, and so we do things like misconstruing the grace of God to be such that He's not angry at all about sin. After all, He knows we can't help it. Now understand that we, of course, know enough to never state it that obviously, but instead we mask it with foul false humility. And we say things like, oh, no one's more wretched than me, right? Who's a bigger sinner than I am? God knows the depth of my wickedness. I'm sure you've heard these, which I want to tell you would be rather astute observations if not for the fact that usually people say it while they're smiling. Often jesting lightheartedly about the one thing about us that would absolutely justify the full wrath of Almighty God consuming us in any given moment. Both these errors have at their root an utter misrepresentation of the seriousness of our condition, the seriousness of our sin problem. Both have at their root a horrific pride that only man can live in so obviously all the while thinking himself kind of above it all. Both show the false humility that we so often engage in. And beloved, both stand in direct opposition to what I think we're going to see in this 51st Psalm. Where we see in David a picture, not just of real, genuine, heartbroken humility before God in the face of sin, but we also see a glorious picture of the wonderful grace and mercy of God and that he has provided a righteous, perfect sacrifice in Jesus Christ. The one who atones for the sin of his people, covering them with the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, making faithful through Christ what was plucked directly from the unfaithful heap of sin-stained humanity. I hope that as we look at the true repentance of King David for his transgressions against the holiness of God this morning, that you and I are led to consider ourselves not to move us toward more and more of our own regiments of supposed righteousness, but to move us even more towards real, true, genuine, fruit-bearing gratitude when we realize the tender mercies of Almighty God in whom we find forgiveness and grace even after we have been shocked by the heinousness of our sin against God. I hope to point out to you this morning three comforts that I think we find in understanding that the exposure of our sin, as painful as that may be, will serve to point the people of God to the mercy that is ours when we have been purchased through the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'd like you to follow along now as we look together at this prayer of David's heart and the first six verses of this humble, sorrowful, and yet I want to tell you incredibly hopeful psalm, Psalm 51. Hear now the word of our Lord. To the chief musician... A psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make known you will make me to know wisdom. This is the word of our Lord, and may He always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we're grateful this morning for the opportunity that we now have to come before your word. We ask that you would clear our hearts and minds of the many things that distract us and that we would give our full attention to the truth of your word and that through the power of your Holy Spirit, we would hear your word and be transformed by that word more and more for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first comfort that I think we see here is that God graciously exposes the sin of his beloved children. God graciously exposes the sin of his beloved children. Often when we read the individual Psalms, we find ourselves simply looking past or even ignoring the individual introductions to the Psalms themselves that are are often found right at the very beginning of each psalm. They're not part of the numbered verses of the text, and so we just quickly breeze by them as if they're being outside of the system of numbering and placing the text into individual chapters make them somehow less than the inspired Word of God. Beloved, it is the words of sacred Scripture that are inspired, not the system of numbering and placing chapter headings within a particular text. And that would be a tragedy anytime we do it. But I want to tell you, it would be especially tragic here. Where this brief note to the chief musician really sets the entire context for the lament of David's heart that follows. This prayer of David's heart comes on the heels of a very disturbing event in the life of the great king. This event is very clearly spelled out for us here as being when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. This is a prayer that follows one of the most stinging and I would say memorable rebukes recorded in all of Scripture. David, King David, had fallen. And he was very busy working out his hiding of that fact from the eyes of all the people that were around him. He had given in to foolish pride and as a consequence to lust, which subsequently led even to the murder of a man. A man whose only description in the pages of Scripture is one of a loyal and faithful servant to his king. David had been standing on the roof of his his house, looking out at the greatness of his kingdom at a time when everyone else was out in the field defending the kingdom of God from her enemies. And I know you know this story. David sees the beauty of Bathsheba as she is bathing nearby and he decides in his heart that he absolutely must have her as his own. Bathsheba complies with the messengers who had been sent to the king who tell her, of the king's desire for her to come to him. And of course, we know adultery ensues. And the sinful actions of the king of Israel begin to pile up. Bathsheba, shortly thereafter, sends word to David that she has become pregnant. He immediately recognizes that they will not be able to cover this up because her husband... Uriah the Hittite was, after all, out fighting with the people of God who had been entrusted to David's care. David decides that Uriah the Hittite must come home to be with his wife or his sin will be exposed. Uriah comes home from the battle. And he refuses to go into his own house with his wife while the people of God are off fighting and dying in the name of God. And so in front of all of the people, Uriah never goes further than his own doorstep, even opting to sleep on his doorstep on the outside of his door. David, of course, panics. He sends word to the commander of his troops, Joab, to take the man Uriah and place him, this faithful, loyal, fierce warrior, in an area where he will most certainly be killed. And Of course, he is killed. And for a time, David breathes a sigh of relief. Apparently, so caught up in the wickedness of his sin that he has completely forgotten that nothing has ever escaped the sight of an all-seeing, all-knowing, all-powerful God who stands above all. So Almighty God raises up Nathan the prophet to go to David and to rebuke him for his sin. You know that story as well. We've talked about it before. Nathan stirs up the wrath of the king with a story of unbridled greed and ruthlessness existing within David's own kingdom. He tells David of a wealthy landowner who takes the one solitary beloved sheep of his poverty-stricken neighbor in order to feed his own honored guest. And you understand he does it because he doesn't want to take away from his own stock and diminish his personal vast storehouse of blessing. He takes from the meager blessing And tiny portion of a poor man. David. David hears of this heinous behavior and he becomes absolutely enraged. And he justifiably declares with the authority of a king that the man who has done this thing shall surely die. The old weathered prophet looks at the king in the majesty and splendor of his wrath. And he says, my king, you are the man. He informs David that nothing has been hidden from the face of Almighty God. And we're told in that narrative that David then tore his clothes and he wept and he repented and he acknowledged his sin against God. And Nathan, the condemning prophet who brought this rebuke, then comforts David. And he tells him that God has put away his sin and that he will not die. And We see before us this morning the extent of that repentance Recorded here by the hand of King David himself. And all of this seems like a lot to say that the introduction of this psalm is very important. But beloved, it sets the context for the nature of David's plea to God for forgiveness. That he clearly acknowledges that he so desperately needs. That he does not, in fact, he will not ever deserve. It also points out something else for the people of God, something that I believe ought to be a tremendous comfort to us. But I think it's very difficult for us as human beings walking around this creation in these prison houses of fallen flesh to truly come to grips with. And that is this, that the exposure of our sin, the crushing of our pride, The humiliation of our sin being exposed is itself rooted not in the wrath of God, not in the punishment of God, but in his glorious and infinite mercy. Often I think that we hide our sins, we bury them deep, and we think that if we can just escape the notice of men, that we will be okay. And if we're ever exposed to the degree that we can no longer avoid admitting our guilt, we will see it as the judgment of God against us for our sin. Our subsequent humiliation becomes just another way that God sort of gets even with those who would dare to ever cross him. But there's something Far more beautiful going on here than just David's humiliation. Certainly, David is humiliated, and rightly so. His well-laid plans to avoid getting caught have failed miserably. And the old faithful prophet of God, as in effect, walked into the splendor of his palace and called him out. The majesty and the strength of his throne have taken a serious blow in the eyes of the prophet. His foolishness is before his own eyes like a bright, waving, colorful, vivid banner. Yes, he is undoubtedly, unarguably humiliated, but is that why God sent Nathan the prophet to David's house that day? To simply show David who was boss. To expose David as a fraudulent king. And I think the answer is no. And beloved, correctly understanding what lies behind the action of Almighty God in exposing David should fill the people of God with hope this morning hope in the glorious grace of God that he continually showers his people with. God stirred up Nathan the prophet, not to simply point his wagging finger at the folly of David, but he did it in order to collect his beloved wandering sheep. Do you see that this morning? Have you ever thought about it? David had willfully stepped through his sin in a direction that should have moved him away from God. And God gathers up his prophet and he lovingly yet forcefully grabs David and brings him back into the fold. Do you understand the glorious grace of Almighty God in that? Do you fully grasp what's being implied here? You see, beloved, you must see it in order to be able to see the deep encouragement that the people of God have when the heinousness of our sin is exposed. God comes towards us. He condescends to us even while we in our rebellion are running Away from Him. Whatever your sin is this morning, I want you to know this loving, merciful God remains faithful despite your unfaithfulness. And He restores you in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Whatever sin you are hiding, You need to know that the testimony of God's word is that his arm, quite simply put, is never too small. It's never too weak. The action is not taken by sinful man who has somehow come to his senses and moved towards God of his own free will. That's not the picture we get here. But Almighty God, in his sovereignty, lovingly, compassionately, moves towards us, all the while knowing that we are prone to run. Knowing that we are wickedly trying to go our own way. It is God who moves the hearts of men and never men who move the heart of God. And that should be an absolute comfort to us As we look at this psalm and we consider the absolute depravity of our natures. The exceeding sinfulness of our own sin. As we come to recognize that our sin is an offense against the holiness of God. And yet somehow God loves us with a love that knows no bounds. Leads us to the second comfort. The second comfort that I think is evident in the exposure of David's sin here is that God never turns a blind eye to the sin of his people. And again, it's for our own good and for his glory that he does not simply ignore our sin and leave us to our own self-destruction. David had somehow convinced himself that the greatest problem that he faced within this life was the covering up of his sin against God with Bathsheba. So he multiplied his sins by covering one with another and then another. And certainly, if we're honest with ourselves, we can relate to that, right? But the love of God, the grace of Almighty God, would not let David's plan succeed. And even though David had thought that he had smoothed his course through his own deceit, it was not until God in his infinite mercy intervening through Nathan the prophet that David's path ever came anywhere near actual sorrow and correction. Did you notice that with David? David doesn't turn to God looking to be rid of this nightmare that he had created for himself. He thought it was covered up. He was going on with this life and God grabs Nathan the prophet and he sends him to David. Let me ask you something. Have you ever been on the receiving end of a godly rebuke? If you have, you probably recognize that we react in different ways to such things. Often we hear them and they stir us up to wrath. They make us angry. We think, how dare this person say such a thing to the likes of me? We comfort ourselves by hating all authority except our own. Going on our merry way as if our sin was somehow left unchallenged. Does that sound familiar? Listen, if that's your response to a biblical rebuke, then I hope that you recognize the pride in that the arrogance of self-righteousness and ever thinking that you somehow live above the law. That it is the rest of the world that needs to have their consciences pricked by a godly rebuke. That it's all these around you this morning that need to be condemned by the word of God that need to have their consciences seared. Because, in fact... You can look at me and see that I'm doing just fine. I'm squeaky clean, in fact. Go ahead, try and find fault. That's what we tell ourselves. And I guess what I'm asking you is, have your well-laid plans kept the notice of sin far from you? Please understand, brothers and sisters in Christ, that it is not the mercy of God that's leaving your sin unnoticed. It's judgment. God does not turn a blind eye to our innumerable offenses against his holiness. We need to understand that. Our sin is an offense against the perfections of God's character. And if you somehow have made yourself feel vindicated that you have lived your whole life covering up the sin that you know all too well in your own heart, covering up those things that you have worked so hard to keep hidden from the eyes of men that the sin that you have even convinced yourself is not at least not as bad as the sin you see all around you. Then let me be the first to congratulate you. Congratulations, you have fooled everyone around you and the reward for all of your labor is the very pat on the back that you receive in light of such things. The admiring looks that you receive from those around you who wish they could be as righteous as you are. You will find that acknowledgement, acknowledgements of your righteousness, of your service, of your hard work, are all too often fleeting. They're band-aids applied to mortal wounds. They may delay the misery for a moment, but ultimately... They only leave you wanting more and more and more. But understand, you have not fooled God. And if your hope is placed in anything other than the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, covering up your wickedness, then know that even the wonderful praises of men simply speak to your condemnation your supposed good works, other people's admiration simply will not stand in the day of judgment. And all your unchecked sin, all the sin that you have so skillfully hid from the eyes of men will speak judgment and condemnation against you. Nothing escapes the notice of God. But praise be to God, beloved, that there is another way to respond to a godly rebuke or to the searing of your conscience by the word of God, by his holy law. And I'm telling you, we see it here in David. David pleads with God for mercy based entirely upon the loving kindness of God as his only hope. He even sees the depths of his own unfaithfulness, his own wickedness being far more than just his outward acts of adultery, deception, and murder. David acknowledges that his sin problem lies in his nature from the moment he came into being, from his conception. When he inherited the corruption of his father Adam. And he knows that his guilt goes much, much deeper, much, much farther than just these external sinful actions. He says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. There's never been a time when I've been without it. And in sin did my mother conceive me. He acknowledges that his sin runs so deep That even the tender mercies of God need to be multiplied in order to blot out his transgressions. David does not turn to his nature as an excuse, but is even further evidence that the condemnation of God would be justly leveled against him. You see, he has no shred of innocence. Before the face of God here. So he accordingly turns to the mercy of God. As his only hope. David correctly observes that it is far more. Than just the external actions of his life. That need some cleaning up. But he says that God desires truth. In the inward parts. In the heart and it is there that God will make man to know wisdom. Beloved, it is the mercy of God that He does not leave our sin unchecked in this life. Jesus Christ, in His high priestly prayer, prayed that ultimately we as His church would be kept, that we would be sanctified. We who belong to God are dealing with His just condemnation of our sin. It's an offense. But because of the mercy of God in loving what is entirely unlovable, he has given his son as the perfect spotless sacrifice for his people. The person in the work of Jesus Christ, his birth, his perfect life in the eyes of the law, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, all of them rooted in the loving kindness, the tender mercies of God who exposes the sins of his people and painstakingly points them to the perfection of his son for them as he corrects their course to his glory. It leads me to the final point of comfort I want for you to consider this morning in the exposure of our sin and the glorious example of the repentance of God's people that's so evident in this 51st Psalm. The third and final comfort I want to bring up this morning and this really introductory sermon into this merciful song is that it fills us with blessed assurance to know that almighty God will always remain faithful to his covenant promise, not because we deserve it, but because his promises will never and can never fail. God's love is never based upon our ability to reciprocate that love in sinless perfection. But it is based on the rock solid promise made in his covenant with his people. Just one of the places that we find that wonderful covenant promise is in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16. God speaking to David says this. He says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men, but my mercy shall not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you, your throne shall be established forever. God looked on the course. Of David's sin. And he kept his promise to not remove the throne from his line by correcting his course, pointing out his sin, and causing David to look to his, not to his power as king to cover up his transgressions, but to the abundant mercies of Almighty God as his only hope for true, complete restoration. And we know that that promise was, of course, immediately realized in Solomon. But ultimately, even Solomon, in all of his glory, was but a faint, flickering little shadow of the one who would come in the line of David and ascend to his throne and reign for eternity. The promise of God was realized in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Beloved, I want you to hear this. Not even the sins of deceit, fornication, and murder could render that promise of forgiveness null and void. Not even the horrific nature of the sin that you have somehow kept hidden from the eyes of men for all this time through your tears, through your restlessness through your many sleepless nights, can thwart the gracious promises of Almighty God in the gospel. Beloved, our assurance lies in the ability of God to bring about that which he has promised, and there could be no greater assurance than that. You might shock me through the revelation of the dark secret sins of your life, But you will not shock a God who sees all, who knows all, and who points you lovingly to Jesus Christ despite it. Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So, beloved, I can joyfully declare to you with the full authority of the word of God this morning that the time for your hiding and your laboring has ended The time to trust in the externals of the law and your own ability to keep them has ended. The promise of God has been realized in full perfection through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's only in him we see the multitude of God's tender mercies, the loving kindness of God coming to full fruition. The promise of God that it is in him alone Regardless of the heinousness of your crimes against his holiness, in him, because of him, you and I have eternal life in the complete forgiveness of all our sins, past, present, and future. Our sins are removed from us as far as the east is from the west. Let your assurance rest in the glorious, merciful promise of God realized in the Lord Jesus Christ. And with a heart overflowing with very real and true gratitude, worship him this morning in spirit and in truth and be comforted by the word of God, which confronts your sin so that you might see the glories of your salvation in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.